0: Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions, and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories, and to feel encouraged connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption
1: because
2: especially with books there are times in your life where one book will be right for you and then in five years time like for us it's just not the right time and we're tearing shreds for it so we're taking that off there and we go to blows big time with what (laughs) we think is a good book which might sound ridiculous but it's something we are you know we love reading
0: The opportunity to interview two guys named Adam who work together was too good to pass up for me. These two Adams have also got a podcast which they work on together. It's called What You Will Learn. The thing that came across really clearly through our conversation was the chemistry between them and how well they support each other and love working together. I think that's the thing that really stood out to me, that the support that comes from working in an aligned team and the power that that brings and I guess the increase. In chances of success of a venture that that brings. I'm Adam Murray and thanks for joining me as I talk with Adam Jones and Adam Ashton on the subtle disruption of an aligned duo. Well, Adam and Adam, it's the three Adams today, sitting around this bench um, using your equipment as well, which is very cool.
2: (laughs) How do I refer to you both? Adam and Adam, or yeah. their nicknames, so <laughs> We change it a bit every time, but I'll go with Jonesy today. Jonesy, great.
0: Yeah, Dean Jones is my reference for that. So, um, oh, the nice. cricketer. Yeah. You won't forget
2: that, then. Yeah, I won't
1: forget that. Uh, I can just go Ashton because I want to hear what your reference is for Ashton. Ashton Kutcher. Yeah, yeah. Ah. yeah nice. There we go. In is I'll that how that.
2: you remember names? Do you always tie something like that in to remember names as a as a tactic?
0: Yeah, something like that. Usually, yeah. a bit of a tactic like. Association with another word, or often, yeah, with a person if I can. Like, not so much with the name, usually. I'm normally looking at the person's face and thinking, Jonesy, Jonesy, Jonesy. Yeah, he Mm -hmm. looks
1: a bit like Dean Jones. Not that you look that much like Dean Jones, but. (laughs) 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 Mate, because you have a shocking memory for names until we read uh, one of the memory books, yeah? Memory books. It was
2: Moonwalking with Einstein. Yeah. And uh, interestingly enough, to improve your memory, what it says is uh, you want to associate with something like your tongue, but also if you make it really go to the brain where you're scared and fear, but also yeah. sex. <laughs> so if you get really weird sexual images of someone associated with a name, then you'll never lose it. <laughs>
1: that just that don't,
2: right? yeah, and the more weird the sexual uh, connotation in it, the better uh, for your memory, but maybe not for your mental health long term.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that could be a fun game to kind of like reminisce on how you uh, remember certain names <laughs> after a few beers, of course. As well. <laughs> I always ask where we are today, where we're we having this conversation, and why have you chosen this place?
1: Yeah, we're in uh, Dean Jones's place at the moment. <laughs> oh, sorry, Adam Jones, you've already you've got me. <laughs> and, um, so we're just at the pretty much at the kitchen table, I guess. We do a podcast. We read a book each week and review the best stuff. Interview some big authors, and this is where we do it. You know, if you think that a podcast is super fancy with a lot of high tech equipment and recording studios and everything, it's certainly not that. It's as easy as whacking a couple of mics, whacking up your laptop, and jump on the kitchen table. Yeah. Well, let's start there. Like, how easy did you find this to start? I think in terms of the actual idea of recording a podcast is uh, extremely simple. In terms of the a couple of free programs, yeah, most laptops have got a microphone built in. So, in terms of the actual recording episode, very, very, very simple. Open it up and hit record. In terms of the courage or the confidence to mm. get over that resistance of someone might hear this, you know, it's my own voice. And there's a, a lot more, I guess, the, of the mental side of things rather than the technical side of things. That was uh, the hardest to overcome. For us,
2: it was 10 episodes, was our original goal. But at the same time, with our podcasting, it wasn't all about having people listen. So we didn't really care if anyone mm. was tuning in at the very start. We did it as a, a strategy to actually retain more from books because we'd go out and read a full non-fiction book in a quick rate and then someone will ask me, well, what would you get from it? And we will like, just forgot the whole thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we thought if we do a podcast, all of a sudden we're taking notes and we're reading actively and then on top of that, before an episode we'll be talking about the book and we'll talk about the book in the episode and then we'll listen to the episode. So it's all of a sudden five different times where... Basically, getting all the the lessons from the book, yeah. And we saw this really early, and this is why we started the podcast. But anyway, we, we thought ten episodes as a bare minimum, and with that, looking at at that way with a very limited downside, the courage part kind of took care of itself because we weren't trying to, you know, go out and share it with a bunch of mates or anything. It was just uh, just sitting there and for other people to find.
1: Yeah, that was pretty much it the, in terms of that limiting the downside. That any new project, you know, you got to weigh up, I guess, the costs and the benefits. And we had pretty much nil cost because we thought as a very worst case we're going to retain five times as much from reading which we love doing anyway we're probably going to read more often like we're going to be forced to keep each other accountable to keep reading rather than you know one book every three weeks we had to ramp that up a bit and then we maybe we become better speakers, a bit more confident, and we learn a new skill of podcasting, and there were sort of all these benefits. Mm. And then maybe someone might listen eventually. That was like a the cherry on top, I guess.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about a couple of things. How did you find you started to retain more knowledge? Did that just happen automatically,
1: or were they some of the first books you read? How to get better at reading? There's a book called How to Read a Book, which we haven't read yet. <laughs> we definitely need to do that. But you know, it was not so much the that we're you know learning things like speed reading and trying to. You know, memory techniques like linking it to sex to remember everything. But uh, it was more the, I guess, the, the frequency or the regularity at which we did stuff. So rather than just passively reading a book, we had to actively sort of read to take notes. And then as, you know, we make our own sort of episode plan, we talk about it, we do the episode, we listen back to the episode. And then thinking to have to teach someone, you have to remember it a lot more. So it was nothing specific other than just doing it a hell of a lot, exposing yourself to the same content five times in a week instead of once. Yeah. And did you find that Jonesy Happy Dean Jones,
0: Jonesy? <laughs> like, do you think having two of you doing this actually helped a lot as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Especially with podcasting, you want to do something that you'd do if no one would listen. So you could you mm. could go after nine, 12 months, just talk about something you're super passionate about anyway. And then that's it. That's the downside. But having the additional person as well, it, Adds to the accountability, obviously to reading, which is one of the first reasons we, as we were saying, we started the podcast in the first place. And when you got two people as well, it's just like two mates talking. We, it's a conversation we'd have anyway with a coffee or a beer or something. So we thought we might as well just hit record and then that's it. And then, uh, little do we know eventually there was all of a sudden some listeners to our surprise because, you know, we thought if we could help one person with one book. Because we're of the belief that everyone out there, there's a piece of knowledge in a book somewhere that will really change things for them based on whatever their goals are. Mm. So we knew if if we could just do it for one or two people at the very start, then it's really worth the whole effort. And and right now, it's gotten to the point where we're obviously helping a lot of different people every day. So we're we're absolutely stoked with how podcasting ended up. That limited downside we went for, the upside has really came to potential as well. Yeah. I wanted to go go back a little bit and to what you were talking about at
0: the start, about that initial fear of somebody hearing what is being put out into the world. And I know that that's something Mm. that I felt when I started the podcast as well. It was probably the first time I'd put myself out there in quite a public way that people could comment on and I wouldn't have any control over that commenting. Mm. And uh, I did eight episodes and it was a similar kind of approach. I was happy just to have the conversations that I was having even Mm, if nobody was listening, but there was still this kind of fear that What the hell are people going to think about this?
2: Yeah, man. It is so scary. I didn't even share it with mates until we were about 50 episodes in when there was other people listening and, you know, randoms at a party or something. But, you know, at the start, whenever you really create something for the first time, it's like you're stepping into an arena, so to speak. And right there, you know, you can get destroyed. There's people on the sidelines pointing at you, yelling at you, telling you you're hopeless and all that. And that's what it feels like. So you're going in there with some kind of armor. And when you have to share something to the world, you're taking your armor off, and all of a sudden you're extremely vulnerable to attack from all these people on the sidelines, right?
1: Yeah, I think uh, we sort of took a lesser approach. If it was, I guess, sharing our deepest selves or you know some really deep thoughts that we'd had, that would be a lot more scary. I think we sort of took a little bit, bit of an easy way out in that you know we're reading a book and we're sharing what the book has to say. Mm. So at the very start, it was, it was sort of sharing other people's lessons and ideas rather than our own, and then. As we got a little bit more comfortable, we started to inject a little bit more of our own flavor in there as well.
2: Yeah, because for both of us, you know, we're pretty young, especially when we started, we're just fresh from uni. It's like, who's going to listen to two blokes from uni who haven't done anything? And, you know, rightly so. And even still today, really. So we go out there and it's not us, our opinion. It's the people who've already spent a whole lifetime dedicated to one subject and packaged it in a book. And it's our job to really go and find the best bits and give that to the audience. And it's really got nothing to do with you know us at all.
0: Yeah. Well, can you talk through your actual methods from picking a book to you know reading it? Do you read it separately to sharing ideas and then putting together an episode? What's your process for that?
1: Yeah. Generally, uh, we've sort of got a big stack of books. So we've got I've got two bookshelves at home. Each has got six shelves on it, so there's twelve shelves. I've read four of those twelve shelves, and I've got the others are full as well. So there's eight shelves of books. So there's twice as many books that I haven't read yet. So yeah. we sort of, whenever we think, "Oh, this book sounds great," we generally buy it, whack it on the shelf, and we'll get to it eventually. So it's sort of reading throughout the week wherever we can. You know, inject half an hour here, ten minutes there, fifteen minutes here and there. Take some notes as we go, and then at the end of the week, so on a Friday or Saturday, one of us sort of we alternate each book. We'll make like a bit of a mind map or a bit of an episode plan based on, okay, this chapter here were the best things, this chapter here are the best things, try to weave a bit of a story into it. Hmm. And then we go over that together. So after we've made our, one person makes a plan, the other person jumps in with a, you know, a few additions, few subtractions, few tweaks here or there. We go through maybe 15, 20 minutes talking it through and then hit record, I guess, and go for it.
0: Yeah, cool. I mean, is there any ever points of contention between you about you know the topic of a book or what was good about it or yeah anything like that definitely
2: yeah <laughs> absolutely we got we got Tell different just, ways a bit of a reviewing between books us now the, um, <laughs> <laughs> we generally get quite angry at each other anger is a strong word on is there a weaker word <laughs> than that but it's uh, yeah it's in that direction anyway but for a long time we or for a, a period we were telling what our opinion of the book was and that would be the end of the episode and we give someone a th- a book of three and would tear shreds of the author just saying what a piece of crud the (laughs) whole book was and so forth and there'll be four minutes of us just tearing it apart. But now we are taking that off air a little bit because especially with books, there are times in your life where one book will be right for you Mm. and then in five years' time, like for us, it's just not the right time and we're tearing shreds for it. So we're taking that off air and we go (laughs) to to blows big time with what (laughs) we think is a good book, which might sound ridiculous but it's something we are... You know, we love reading, so yeah. it's our thing.
1: Especially at the start, we were very much of the same opinion. We we are still very much of the same opinion in that as we go and we're making our own highlights, 90% of those are exactly the same like for both of us. So we've definitely got a lot in, in common, but there's that 10% that we're probably not in 100% agreeance on and it's a bit of give and take and you know, I'll do a, an Adam Jones book. Adam Jones will do an Adam Ashton book <laughs> and we sort of go go try to make it as fair as possible and... Keep the digs off air. Yeah, the yeah. good. So I'll do the good book,
2: <laughs> and this bloke will come in here with his with his Malcolm Gladwell kind of kind of stuff like that. <laughs> All right. Yep. Let's uh, go there. So, uh, Jonesy, what's a
0: book that that you love that Adam Ashton doesn't like?
2: There's a few different roads I can take. here. Oh, there's plenty of different roads, mate. There's a lot of shit to pick from. All right. <laughs> I'm going to go with Yuval Noah Harari's. Twenty-one lessons for the twenty-first century. Oh, mate, I love it. Yeah, you gave it. <laughs> you, you had it ranked number nine when it should be ranked number three for the for the year. So the, the difference, I think, we both have in terms of rating a book. For me, it all comes down to if you take one thing away from it that's impactful and big, then it doesn't matter how long the book is. If it's three hundred, four hundred pages, then I don't care. I'm happy to just crawl through the river of shit to just pick up that one piece of gold, and then yep, we're on. For Ashto, he hates crawling through a lot of uh, crap to get to the gold. And having said this, you <laughs> that's probably a bad example. It's a shocking example. I think The Black Swan by Nelson
1: you oh, Give me an deep example. Work.
2: I'll, give you, I'll give you a bit. Deep work. <laughs> There's a
1: book called Deep Work by Cal Newport. I'm and halfway through it at the moment. Yeah, nice. yeah, I really like the takeaway that it's really important to do deep work, get focused, no distractions rather than just doing shallow menial tasks here and there. Sort of that idea I strongly agree with and even as a result of the book, I quit social media, deleted the apps off my phone. The... 10 page summary of the best ideas of that book, I absolutely loved, but I felt like the book was probably 250 pages too long than it needed to be. And there was there seemed to be a lot of extra stuff in there that didn't add to that main argument and seemed to, yeah. So it was it was a bit of a slog to get through to get mm. to the best stuff.
2: Yeah. It's kind of a criticism we
1: both share for a lot of books. I think there's a
2: someone who maybe in the case of Cal Newport with Deep Work, I'm not sure, but you know, someone will go out there, definitely Mark Manson, subtle art of not giving a fuck. He writes an incredibly good blog post that's good for three pages, goes out, gets a book deal and they say, look, no, this is a 300-page book and then that is go out there and just flesh a whole bunch of crap out and just waste your time reading
1: mm-hmm. and that
2: does happen in a lot of books. And then there's not even a good takeaway to go with it as well.
1: Yeah. And uh, to preempt your next question, if we go to go reverse. Or just before you do because <laughs> okay, I just want to
0: wholeheartedly concur with those both of those books and what you say about them. Because I slogged through the subtle art of not giving a uh-huh. fuck and got to the end and like, yeah, 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 that could have been sorry. Very summarized. overrated. Oh, yeah.
2: Three minutes or even one
0: sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I think they just picked a good color for the cover. That's yeah. probably one of the big reasons why it's selling so well. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that about deep work because, yeah, I feel like I'm really pushing mm. my way through that to kind oh, of okay. get some deeper truth out of it and do the deep work on that book, but it's obviously
1: just not there. <laughs> yeah, sounds like we're on the same page. I think it's two against one, mate. You're the odd one out. <laughs> we'll go to slugs. Once he's,
2: up, once he's off, we'll go to slugs.
0: All right, yes, your turn.
1: I think Adam Jones would have the exact same criticism that I just gave but in reverse. So say like a book like Malcolm Gladwell, you know, books like Outliers, David and Goliath. I loved it. And I love the the storytelling component of it. I love how we weaved a whole bunch of different stories together. And I really enjoyed the ride that it took me on to get to the lessons as well. But Adam Jones would probably say that was a waste of time and just give me the gold. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So what Big Gladdy Boy does, he is a great storyteller, as you said. But
1: <laughs> be careful, yeah.
2: When you tell a story, what we fall for is something called the narrative fallacy, where we leave a whole bunch of facts out. We go out, we choose our own narrative, choose the only own facts that are irrelevant. And this is what Gladwell is very good at, in my own opinion. He'll have his preconceived conclusion about an idea, then he'll be very, very good at going out there in the world and finding the details there. They're kind of like confirmation bias as well that suits his own narrative. And when it comes to things for success or he he writes in like outliers, for example, he'll just cherry pick singular things. There might be 55 different factors that can contribute to what he's talking about. He'll go out and choose four, flesh them out in an entire book and because he's so intelligent, I'm not going to deny that. He can really convince you of these four facts, even though mm. it might be a big crock.
0: Yeah. Mm. Mm,
2: good. I, I kind of have my doubts about Malcolm Lover. <laughs> <laughs> good man. <laughs> One point each on the game. Don't <laughs>
0: <all>? <laughs> it's interesting that you are so frank in your assessments as well. And I know that you do some actual author interviews too. Like, How do you balance that? Like wanting to not totally sandbag and author, but also be authentic
1: and give
0: your true opinion.
1: Yeah, certainly. I think the most important thing we do is we try to pick the best stuff from the best book. So this is probably, you know, five to 10% of it is giving our full honest opinions. In every book, if we've taken the time to read it, it's almost always going to be worth the time to read for that. If it's 20 bucks to buy a book and... Eight to ten hours to read a book. Mm. If you take one lesson away from it, it's pretty much worth it already. So there's always going to be something good in there. Mm. And as we sort of said at the start, it, there's a lot to do with sort of have you heard the idea before? Maybe it's not as impactful. Whereas if it's the first time you've heard it, it's going to be great. Or the time of your life, you need something, and ten years later, you don't. It makes no sense anymore. There's sort of a lot of different reasons for why we subjectively might like or dislike a book, but we try to focus on what's the best stuff, what are the lessons, what are the takeaways that anybody could listen to this and think, oh yeah, that was a pretty cool lesson that we can take away. So our focus is first and foremost to try and get the best stuff out mm. and then on the way out then maybe give a bit of a frank, honest opinion. Mm. <laughs> yeah.
2: In the interviews, one big thing we've learned and we've just really started to put in is a little bit more dark questions and a little bit more skepticism. So, you know, we all want to be terribly, terribly nice when we meet someone and that's the default, I'd say. And it was probably after reading Laws of Human Nature by uh, Robert Greene where he talks about how we've come so nice. There's this part in our brain that is the dark side or what Carl Jung used to call the shadow. And this is the thing, say, if you're walking on top of a building and there's a ledge there and there's someone in front of you, there's this weird little... Thingy he goes. Oh, it'd be interesting if I just knocked that person off the building, <laughs> or if you're down the street, there'd be these weird dark thoughts that come into your. Life. And a lot of the time, we just block them out, like it's not a real thing. And you can tell straight away in society some people like that. You know, if you speak to some priests out there and so forth, there's a lot of people suppressing this this shadow side or dark side of them. And a lot of the time, it comes at the cost of assertiveness. So at the first 30 or so interviews that we did, we weren't assertive at all. We were just told them the things that they wanted to hear. And the biggest improvement we've got is by slowly veering into the more skeptical questions and, mm. and assertive. And I think at the same time, they got a lot more respect for us as interviewers as well, not just being so nice and such pushovers.
0: Yeah, have you got that feedback from them or have you,
1: you noticed a different kind of quality in the interview? That could be a bit of narrative fallacy confirmation bias there, <laughs> No, I do think it is important. At the start especially, we were super, super, super nervous and we just wanted to do the basic stuff that I guess everybody does or just focus on the main points of the book that we want to get across. And I think it is better to, we call them the red zone question. We, we want to make sure we always get a red zone in there that's you know not just the easy question but we, either he's going to get us a much better answer or it's gonna give a present a different opinion. We like to get something a little bit different in there that makes it not just like every other interview. Mm. Yeah, some good, mm. good things for me to think about <laughs> that. <as well>. Yeah, I to your red zone, zone later. question. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's probably
2: a good thing, in my own opinion, for you know, everyone in there, whatever their job might be, is being so nice and everything has its places and advantages, but there is a time to let that little bit of dark assertiveness come out. If you look at leaders in the world or, or ex-leaders like or just whoever you think of who you see as effective, a lot of the time they've got this part in them that isn't such a pushover. They could tear someone apart if they had to in the face of their values. So they've they, they got their strong values and they've got this... Piece in their tool belt to actually knock someone apart if they wanted to or if they needed to.
1: Yeah, there's a in that book, The Laws of Human Nature, we're talking about. He talks about Steve Jobs, and everyone sees Steve Jobs. He was a great businessman. He had revolutionary ideas. And they say, you know, maybe it was, it was a bit of a shame that he wasn't the best with people, or sometimes he was a bit abrasive and rubbed people up the wrong way. But Robert Greene sort of says that rather than saying, you know, just be like Steve Jobs, but take away the poor people skills and add your own in, he's saying that maybe the Having that dark side of being the not the most you know kind person to everyone, and he was able to be a bit abrasive and able to you know speak his mind. Perhaps that's that's what made him so great. So don't try to take the dark side out. Try to embrace the whole lot. Yeah, I like that. It scares me a little bit. I like <laughs> I think, yeah, as I was saying, like I tear someone apart. We don't do that to the people
2: we interview. <laughs> we don't we them we're to not the dark yet. We're not that dark yet. <laughs> we're we're on the way. Yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> what about on the other side? Who's the author? that you've noticed embody that dark side of themselves the best where you've said, I, I can't, this person I know would
1: tear me apart. They've got that thing in them if they really wanted to pull it out. I'm going to say uh, Dr. Carl, famous mm, uh, yes. Australian scientist. He's an absolute legend of a bloke. We've actually interviewed him twice now and loved it both times. He's an awesome character. He's a bit of a kooky dude but in the best way possible and you see him on TV, you hear him on the radio and that's exactly how he is when the mics are on and when the mics are off. And the dark side element comes into it when uh, the first time we met him, he loved to tear Adam Jones to shreds a little bit. It started at the very start when I think he put something on his iPad and he was very sensitive about not touching the screen of his iPad. So he quickly put his iPad back upstairs away from Adam Jones. <laughs> um, but then also he talked about, you know, he was not uh, afraid to ask the hard question. And if we gave him a weak answer, he'd double down and ask for a, a much better answer.
2: Mm. Yeah. So that was my yeah in my area of expertise as a structural engineer right he, he'd ask something and then I'd give him the high level answer that ninety nine point nine nine percent of the people out there oh sounded yeah. sounds great to me sounds great but then no goes why that what it was like three wires deep and then at that <laughs> level he knew more than me I'm like <laughs> so he's a really smart man but it just shows how he got smart it was he actually drills down and
1: genuinely curious yeah whereas I was sitting there and I thought oh yeah that yeah you just Drill a hole there and it makes it all better. That, that makes sense in my mind but uh, that's probably why I didn't learn as much Was Dr. Carl wasn't afraid to ask the hard question. The yeah. second
2: time we interviewed me, he really teared me to shreds again. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: so we interviewed him in, at the university in Sydney and there was all the exam papers in the room and he said, just make sure you close the door. He told us about six times and at the, at the end of the interview, we took all our stuff and then went to his office and then we chatted there for about 15 minutes and then when we go back to the room, the door's open. All the exam papers are there and most likely a whole bunch of students went in and just took their big exam papers. So he really, really lost it then at me as well. Indeed. But at the same time, still I think he still enjoys my company. He just loses at me every time. We'll find yeah.
1: out in about 11 months if he has us back for round three or not. Yeah, exactly.
0: So let's talk about how it emerged from... Like, I presume your first few episodes were purely just book reviews and then you started doing interviews. How did it progress from, or well, how did you make that progression?
1: Yeah, it was actually it was at least six or seven months before we got the first interview. and That was not by lack of trying, but at the very start, we thought you know as a worst case, we're going to focus on books as every week we're going to do a book. That was sort of the main goal. We love listening to podcasts like uh, Tim Ferriss, James Altucher, Joe Rogan, The Good Life Project, all these other interview podcasts and we thought we'd love to do that as well. And I sort of thought, you know, some interview podcasts, they don't really read the book and they're probably asking the real surface level questions. And we thought we can do a little bit better because we know the content, we can probably go to the next step rather than just the basic stuff that they've already said in their book. And so we sort of built up, we were trying to get people, trying to get people. And then eventually six or seven months in, we cracked one and then, you know, we'd send out 50 emails and one person would respond. And then the next time we'd say, oh, we just had this person on, we sent out 50 emails and three people had responded and it sort of built up from there. And The more guests we got, the more likely we were to get other guests and you get a few big names and it makes it easier to get more people and it just sort of built up from there.
2: Mm, Yes, the strike rate, and you've probably had it as well. When you're at the very start, the strike rate of landing guests is so bloody low, it's it's really difficult, right? Yeah. So we hired a VA from, I think it was Kenya at the time, Shout out to Daniel. (laughs) So we had our big list of books that we both loved and we had him help us out and go and find all their contact details and save in draft emails say hey insert name uh, we really <laughs> loved your book insert book title <laughs> <laughs> did one of those ones yeah. and then we got someone from um, Adelaide Australia paying them a little bit more to actually personalize each email a bit more and then we were this way we were able to really send out 50 emails at a time and then at the start we'd get you know two or three reply maybe and then of those would maybe be lucky to get one and after that, after a little while, we we got a bit of credibility. All of a sudden, you can leverage the previous guest name yeah. to get the next guest, and so forth. So it's a positive feedback loop. And obviously, now we've we've dropped that, and you know we've got a media kit to pass on to all the the guests that we're looking to speak to, and with details about the show. And all of a sudden, the strike rate's much higher.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I'm actually just starting a new podcast now for my work. Oh nice cogent where I'm working at the moment, and which is awesome to be getting paid to do that, and. I'm finding the same thing over again. Like the first season, Mm. I originally planned to get eight interviews done, but I'm going to scale it down to about six. But just to get those first six people across the line and interested when they don't have a lot to go by apart Mm. from like a bit of text that I've written up about what the podcast is about and Cogent's reputation as well. Mm. But I imagine similar to what happened the first time, once people can see who's already been on it and they kind of want to be associated with those people as well, yeah. it be much easier. Yeah, that's yeah. a
1: big part of it. Obviously, one way to do it is if you say, I'm Joe Rogan, I get 20 million listens per week, everyone's just going to say, yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're starting two blokes at the kitchen table, you need to find some other ways to build credibility than just a big audience. So one way was just the, I guess, the persistence of doing a show every week for six months. Mm. So I know one of the Feedback we got at the very start, it was like after our second or third episode. We asked a guy, it was in person, and he said, Hey, once you guys have settled into the routine, I'm happy to do it. But I've just done, I've done a lot of podcasts where they did six episodes and it stopped and no one heard the episode. So that was sort of one of the things that, you know, maybe just having that consistency of doing it for six, 12 months, there was one sort of source of credibility. And then, as we said, you know, the, the more people we have done and then different names that they think, Oh, if Seth Godin's been on the show, I'm, it must be all right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, tell me, how did you get Seth Godin on the show?
1: There was one that um, mm. is a big, uh, probably my number one guy in terms of absolutely love him, love his work, love his books. And I was really, I guess, the most scared to send that email and it was one that we sort of held off a long time because I didn't want to just send a spammy generic virtual assistant. And then we thought, let's just pull the trigger, sent him an email and then sort of heard nothing for maybe six days. and a then a
2: little bit more to it than that. So <laughs> what you did our show is... He's got all his books and I think you've read all of them. So I think what attracted Seth Godin the most was the the insight in your question and at the very bottom it said PS, a little spiel, and then he had a photo of all Seth Godin's books laid out to actually, as proof, right, and credibility mm. that we are genuine fans of Seth Godin.
1: Yeah, I'd say that definitely helped as well. And then it was sort of like, I don't know, we, we sent it on a Monday and we heard nothing until... Sunday night and then on Sunday night he said, oh, I'm free tomorrow at four o'clock. Do you guys want to do it? And we we're like, yeah. That's sure, yeah. <laughs> why
2: <laughs> yeah, so, uh, we were absolutely jumping for glee and yeah. that and then uh, did it in the morning, I think it was that yeah. early morning for us and whipped out the Johnny Blue. <laughs> that was <laughs> yeah, our celebration so <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, We were super excited. Yeah. Uh, that's
0: amazing. <laughs> he's such a legend and I mean he's in the epitome of that consistency mm. and persistence that you're talking about. Like he writes in his blog every day, I think, doesn't he? Yeah. That's his, yeah, one of exactly. his things and what he's been able to build, not just from yeah. that, obviously, a whole lot of other things, but that seems like a bit of a bedrock and a like a keystone habit that he's got. I know
2: he's a massive fan of Stephen Pressfield, The War of Art, have you heard of that book? Yeah. So the idea of, uh, the, the, he talks about the resistance and the resistance is the difference between what you are now and whatever you're potential might be. And and it's like what we opened the episode with is that resistance actually share anything or whatever. So everyone's got it in whatever their goals are. And that's what's stopping them between them and growth in any kind of way. So what Pressfield says is the best way to defeat the resistance is to turn pro. And to turn pro is you don't just do it one hour every now and then. You schedule in a time and you do it every single day at the exact same time just so... Uh, there's no surprises in it. It's like your day job, right? If you turn what your passion is into how you treat your day job as a mundane, probably boring kind of thing that you show up to every day, then that's how you defeat the resistance.
1: Yeah, another one, I, uh, Seth Godin specific one, The Dip, a book that I absolutely love. Very simple. It's 80 pages, you know, 70 pages of gold so you don't have to wade through a deep work style to get to the, to get to the good bits. <laughs> I <I'd, I'd, laughs>
2: agree he's got the, the most efficient like – good content per word. It's not the highest one of those rates.
1: Yeah. And so the dip talks about that in any project you do, there's going to be some initial wins. So if it's starting a podcast, maybe you do your first episode and then your first person listens to it and then uh, someone says, oh, mate, that was great. So there's all these wins at the very start and then it sort of seems to drop off and there's this long trough in the middle called the dip and that's where extra effort doesn't lead to extra rewards. So maybe your first 30 episodes of your podcast and you don't see a whole lot more extra listeners. But what he's saying is that the dip, most people quit there because it's tough. You know, it feels like you're not getting anywhere. Mm. But because so many people quit, it becomes such a valuable thing to do, to become the, the best in the world, like in your world, to be the best podcaster or to, be, you know, to write a book, to have a book physically in your hands. It's something very scarce and hence valuable. And so the dip, when people quit in the middle of the dip, it makes it scarce. And when you get to the other side of the dip, that's where the exponential rewards start to kick in. So it's maybe like if you're writing a book, at the very start you write your first page, you tell a mate that you're writing a book and he says good stuff and that's then the dip is writing the next 200 pages. And at the very end you get the results of physically publishing and printing a book and you've got it held in your hands and that's the results of you becoming an author then. So it's sort of that idea that in any project there's going to be a long slog ahead of you and you've got to decide at the very start is this something you're going to commit to or not because the worst time to quit is right in the middle of the dip. It's better to quit before you start or commit to it and get through to the other side. Mm.
2: You might think the dip's the worst thing ever when you're in it but it's actually your best friend because it's the dip that makes everyone else fall off and then makes the actual thing of getting through the dip scarce and valuable in the first place, right? So writing a book's bloody hard. So pushing through that dip means no one else is. it's very hard to get this. There's not many Authors out there compared to the people who want to be authors, mm-hmm. and it's probably related to, to what we were saying about podcasting as well. The dip might have been that slog at the very start when we got no credibility. So it's a long slog, and then all of a sudden you get leverage, more leverage, and you land a Seth Godin, and you use him as leverage. You push through the dip. Not much other people out there have got that scarcity, and then that's you know that's where the value is for things. So, as you said, Ashto, it's knowing that the dips there in any kind of endeavor you go for and then just choosing the right dip. Don't go into a dip and go dip hopping and start something and then move around mm. and move around because you, you're never going to get scarce kind of skills or assets and so forth because you know it's scarcity that makes you valuable in your career and your business and so forth. So whatever you want to do, you want to do things that not many other people can do and have things that not many other people have done and so forth. Was there a moment when you thought about giving up in
1: your dip? I think we're... We've built up the other benefits. Audience is almost the, the last benefit of it. So we're sort of still, you know, we're forced to read more and learn more, and we're reading a hell of a lot more than we ever would be otherwise. And uh, there's definitely been moments where we thought, oh, it's done. People stopped listening. It's time to give up. Let's throw in the towel, um, most certainly. But we're certainly still in the middle of the dip. So we're going to keep pushing through <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. You feel like you are? Oh, definitely. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And it's probably. I feel like we're turned pro using that press field mm. analogy. Like we're, it's just a habit. We do it every week. There's no mm. questioning it or anything because we're turning pro. We're just going to keep on trugging along. That's what I feel like anyway. Yeah, unless As you we got said to- no, no, hundred percent. Yeah,
1: at the very start, we said we, we were going to commit to ten episodes, and the first book we did was. Anything You Want by Derek Sivers. It was a pretty short book, 100 pages or so. It was pretty easy to do. The next book we decided to do was The Magic of Thinking Big, I believe. And it took us three weeks to read it because now it certainly wouldn't take us three weeks. But at the time, we hadn't got that habit of reading regularly, reading enough to do a book a week. So we thought maybe we should just not do something for a week. But we injected a couple of documentaries and a couple of movies and stuff like that to, I guess, keep us going until we got to the point where the habits took over. Yeah. Considering that you...
0: I mean, how many years have you been doing it now? How
2: Two two and a half years. Two and a half years,
0: yeah. yeah, And you're you're still going through what you consider to be a bit of a dip. Do you have a bit of a a vision
2: in your mind of what you'd like it to be or what the other side of the dip might look like? I feel like this dip, I'd like to commercialize it in in some way. In some way the, the listeners are getting value. So if we could build something that the listeners genuinely want and they're happy to pay for and then from there we can earn a bit of money from it. And then that just gives us flexibility to either do more projects based on the podcast, or flexibility to do different or more risky business in terms of your day job and so forth. So hmm. I feel like the first dip was getting listeners, and then this next harder, longer dip is actually finding a way to commercialize something you're genuinely passionate about and is and is a simple hobby. So you know, to commercialize a hobby, there's going to be a dip involved. That's not easy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one sick goal I reckon would be to to be recognised from it. That's a bit of a selfish goal, though. And then an even better one is to for someone to say, "Hey, I listened to an episode and it changed my life in whatever way, or just changed the way I look at things." That, like that'd be a pretty good end of the dip. Yeah, we're still getting that a little bit. We just did a book, um, Alan Carr, the easy way to control alcohol, and uh, we both eight or nine days clean, haven't drunk alcohol since and don't intend to ever again. Really? Yeah. Wow. We, we yeah. don't want to force it on anyone, that's for sure. But uh, <laughs> we had uh, one bloke emailed in and said, I wasn't listening for me, I don't have an alcohol problem, which is exactly what we thought as well. We're not alcoholics, we'll just read it for maybe somebody else out there who's listening. And he said, I was listening because I thought maybe my dad could learn something from this. And he thought, actually, hang on. There's uh, a few things I need to think about here and I'm gonna dry out. So shout out to Mickey from the UK. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah.
0: Do you have a few stories like that where you're saying you know you'd like to be recognized or really acknowledged that you've had a role in changing somebody's life? But is there do you get a bit of feedback saying those kind of things? Because I imagine in many ways what you're doing, you're helping people with the selection process of the books they read or yeah. bypassing that mm. step altogether.
2: We get that all the time, people emailing in and and not the not the extremely deep level. I don't think they'd say, uh, you two guys changed my life. We never got that and we probably wouldn't expect it but we'll get in our surveys and emails saying this one concept from this one book did a lot for me and so forth. So, Indirectly, I'm pretty confident that there's that many people listening and and reading more better books because of us. We're pretty sure that there will be a lot of people out there having a lot of things change for them.
0: There seems to be really good chemistry between the two of you. How long have you known each other?
1: We met uh, probably five or six years ago. We we're working at a pub actually. We we're both at uni and we we're working at a, just the local pub. Adam Jones went to study overseas for a year, and my first day was his last day. And then <laughs> when he came back from overseas, His first day back was my last day because I got the arse because I wasn't a great employee. Yeah, you weren't. (laughs) uh, You weren't the best bartender. (laughs) We met each other a couple of times and it was uh, probably like our last semester at uni where I think I just saw I was reading a book and Adam was reading a book in the sun as well. And I just said, Oh, Adam, how are you doing? And then we just sort of chatted and then, you know, met up a couple of times at uni, but we both finished at the same time, very different degrees, but we both got jobs in the city at the same time as well. So we tried to make it a bit of a weekly thing where we'd get together for a coffee or a breakfast on a Friday morning and then we started talking about the books we were reading and then from there we thought maybe we should read the same book so at least we can sort of share ideas of what we thought about it and then from there we thought, well, we're sort of doing this anyway. Every week we're sort of reading a book, talking about the lessons, having our own conversation about it and then maybe we should just record it as a podcast and see where it goes. yeah. Awesome. Mm. I remember when I started my this podcast and
0: I'd, I'd edited all myself to begin with as well, which was arduous to say the least. Mm. And also pretty painful to listen to myself <laughs> speak. Yeah. But I think it was probably one of the most valuable things I did. Like I don't edit it anymore and I probably did the first 20 or maybe even 40 episodes. But I learned so much about how I was and how I came across and how mm. I sounded and the questions mm. I was asking and that kind of thing. Did you do your own editing? Well, have you, that's not really my question, but it's have you noticed your mm-hmm. dynamic change and your skill improve over time?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We've obviously, the, the obvious things like ums and ahs did a bit of, I think you were much stronger on the
1: ums than me. I think we also both sort of we go through phases where we'll pick it seems to be like one word and it'll pop up ten times in an episode. Like either mm. I used to say like oh so basically or so essentially. I probably replace my arms with essentially and your you <laughs> you you nose, you pops a lot. up a lot. Yeah,
2: it, 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 different. You it's like whack 'em all. You whack one word down, <laughs> and another no one, one pops up. basically.
1: You've got to whack that and one. Every episode, another one will pop up.
2: So it's uh, I think it's the the downwind trend is the, the words are getting whacked. And little smaller ones are popping up. They're yes. still popping up every now and then.
1: Yeah. I think another big part of, I guess, the improvement you're sort of asking is at the very start, it was sort of a, almost like a, a list sort of like, you know, this, this is the the best things we learned. And it was we sort of rattled them off and here's this lesson and here's this lesson and here's this lesson. And as we've gone on, we've tried to craft a bit more of a – Story. So rather than just say, here's the lesson, we try to build it up a little bit more, a bit, a bit of tension, a bit of uh, mystery in there, and try to really teach the lesson rather than just tell them what the lesson is. Mm.
2: Yeah, that's been really big. And I think mean, that's taken away from some books as well, their style. There's it's a lot of Gladwell of, style where he tells a story <laughs> of,
1: <laughs>
2: I'd say, uh, deep work style, <laughs> where there's a lot of tension and then there's a big release. Which makes you do big changes, like quit social media, <laughs> like you have, mate. But yeah. that's exactly what they do. They a lot of the time when you're doing any kind of storytelling, you can't just go release, 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 like less and less and less and less and less. And there's that tension. There's that little bit of build up, and then there's that anticipation. What you're waiting to, mm. what are they? Or And then you just go bang, and yeah. that's the release.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's that's one of the the things we really sort of not super consciously at the start anyway, but something we developed, and we're we're still definitely trying to work on for sure. Yeah. A couple of questions, I guess, to
0: change gear a bit. One of them is about perhaps for each of you, like what this is enabling in your life or there's a why you're doing this, which I think you've explained, which is about, you know, being able to read more books, retain more knowledge, and then share that with other people. But you've got other parts to your life, I presume. Mm. And what what does this doing this podcast enable now? And maybe what
2: what do you hope it will enable as well? So immediately... The skill of podcasting, I, like yourself, in my day job, I've started doing a podcast for the business I'm working for and it's, it's been incredible in terms of uh, positioning yourself as as someone in the field, in the niche and then as a networking tool as well. So specifically, it's on timber structural engineering for mid-rise buildings, which is a real market just opening up. It's brand new. Super niche, <laughs> that's for sure. Super niche and uh, in the space of six months, the top six in the world architects you've been able to build a network with. So the, mm. the skill of podcasting I think is absolutely huge. That's one massive one. Then obviously as we're saying, speaking is is huge, articulating concepts and so forth which I'm still not great at but I used to be absolutely putrid at. It. I just couldn't do it all. And number three is retaining really decent, amazing lessons to to carry with you forever and to help Direct you in making better decisions and so forth. So, our uh, podcast in general, for number one, but the, our podcast in general helps us with just general life as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was a real um, eye opener in that I sort of, you know, I went to a re- pretty good school, worked really hard, got a really good score, went to uni, worked, probably didn't work so hard, but I d- did enough and then got a, you know, corporate job that everyone didn't work sort of, hard. <laughs> <laughs> definitely didn't work hard. The work definitely went down. <laughs> but it was sort of one of those things that, you know, I thought that was the path was, you know, go to school, go to uni, get a good job, work really hard, build your way up, get promotions, and then retire at the end of it. But reading all these different sorts of books opened my eyes to really different possibilities, I guess, different potential ways to do it. So recently in the last couple of months, I've left the big corporate and I'm working for a small startup doing marketing. So it was mm. just, I guess, from that idea that I I guess had a little bit of a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of confidence, having read, you know, 200 books that Maybe I can do this rather than just hide in the in the big corporate and do the bare minimum, keep your head down and leave at three o'clock and try to do as little as possible. Whereas now it's sort of like, okay, you've got a bit of responsibility. You know, you've... You're In a very comfortable country, we're very lucky and to do the bare minimum is probably not the best way to go about life. So it's sort of like I had to make that big move from just the, the easy comfort to something a little bit more challenging but also something much more valuable in terms of a bit more purpose there, a lot more skill development, a lot more contribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: yeah, you get a real kick up the ass sometimes for me. For me, the, the big thing that happened, I used to be a pack-a-day smoker, I used to be a huge binge drinker. You say recreational drugs, you know, all that. And I was, that was when I was at uni and it was all really spiraling down the gurgler pretty quickly. And someone told me years ago about a book called Alan Carr, Easy Way to Stop Smoking. And I was skeptical, like, what can a book do to change things? And anyway, I bought it, started reading it anyway. And then long story short, the thing that I thought was impossible to quit and change about myself, I read this and then I quit not only with considerable ease but I actually enjoyed the process of quitting. So I was absolutely blown away by what a book could do. And If I think about it, it's like 30 bucks for that book, maybe 10 hours reading and I'm going to save hundreds of thousands of dollars in my life for smoking, Mm. let alone years lived. And if you look at the return on investment in that, it's just like can't put a price on that. So since then, I was like, shit. If this book did this for me, what other books are out there with a similar return on investment? And this is the case for you know, as I said, at the start for everyone. There is a return on investment through the roof for people out there. they just going to find the right book. Someone else has done it before. you just going to find who has.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's an awesome story, and it's it sort of preempts one of the questions that I had for both of you, which is about what is the book that's probably had the most profound impact on your life? Is that the book for you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That uh. That, Really changed my life, I probably went too hard at that time changing things so it's <laughs> it's like your podcast is on disruption right it 's great to a level if you just disrupt, 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 but you don 't have a core thing, then it's, uh, you know, it can be dangerous so yeah. in terms of book yeah that 's by far my number one and then more recently and at this time as well as Alan Carr, easy way to control your alcohol as we mentioned earlier we 're stopped drinking, so this guy he doesn 't say anything bad about the drug you 're trying to stop. Like, he didn't say anything bad about alcohol. He doesn't say anything bad about smoking. What he does, he put, paints the other picture is like, uh, what is life like sober? And all of a sudden, if you, we, we probably can't go deep into it now because there's a lot of fallacies to get through. And if anyone <laughs> wants to listen to it, it's one of our most recent episodes. By painting that picture, you actually just genuinely swap to that side. And there is nothing holding you back and making you want that. Drug again, so it's an easy, easy way to uh, get over any kind of drug addiction. If anyone out there is a smoker or loves someone who is a smoker, just go out and buy this book and just uh, give it to them.
1: Yeah, and if you think about it, like the the worst case is they read the book and think that was a crock of shit and they don't quit smoking. Then there's no loss whatsoever aside from the twenty bucks it costs to buy the book. But in terms of again, sort of limiting the downside, the worst case scenario is they read it and don't quit, and they're in the exact same position. The upside is obviously they read it, their mind is open to a different possibility, and they do quit. That's a massive change for someone. So it's sort of like, you know, if you're a smoker, there's such a big impact for stopping smoking, and it's an easy way to try for sure. What was your favorite book, Asho? I think uh, a big one for me, probably the very first book I ever read. When I say first book I ever read, obviously school and stuff, and then I didn't didn't read for a couple of years because I, you know, I thought there was not much to it, but listening to podcasts all these successful people were talking about all the books that they'd read. So I thought just as I was starting my internship at a big corporate, I thought I should probably start to read a few books as well. And the first one I read was uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie. It's like 80 years old and sort of lasts the test of time and that there's some really small lessons in there that really changed the way I thought, especially a few big ones is like whenever you're talking to somebody, you're always just thinking about what am I going to say next and you're never really listening to them properly. So that idea of actually listen to someone first and not just try to rush in with what you're about to say next was a big lesson. And so whilst the book was my favorite for a long time, it's probably like number 20 on my list at the moment, but it was just the, that sort of thing where, you know, within 200 pages, there was 10 massive lessons that changed the way I look at the world. That sort of probably unlocked the door to reading a hell of a lot of books.
0: Yeah. Reflections on both of your books. Dale Carnegie and that point about, you know, not really listening to somebody when they're talking so pertinent as an interviewer in a podcast. Mm-hmm. Like it's oh, yeah. well initially it was the thing I found myself doing the most. is like preparing the next question mm, while I was talking. That. And then in that moment losing what they're actually talking about as well. And my next question being, not necessarily irrelevant, but not as relevant as it could have been if I had just been in that moment and listening. Mm. Do you find that as well? Oh, man. Yeah.
2: I, I must say, you, I reckon you're fantastic at this. And uh, I think the I don't know if you share something similar, but at the very start, we had a whole bunch of notes and you do a lot of preparation for questions and it's very similar to this because but when you've got those notes in front of you, you're not listening to them, you're waiting for the next question and yeah. this is still something I struggle a little bit with. I've moved to be closer to how you do it, which is no notes at all. But yeah, it's the only way to, to listen if you're just preparing responses then it really
1: goes nowhere. And the other people can feel when you're not listening as well, right? Yeah, especially yeah. the first podcast, probably the first 10 we did We pretty much had a a script, like here are the eight questions we're gonna ask. So it almost didn't matter what they were gonna say. And because we were just sort of we had this set structure, we weren't able to think, Oh, actually that was pretty interesting. We should delve a little bit deeper on this specific area. Mm -hmm. So that idea of listening a little bit more to try and find something better than just the list of eight questions that we had was was super important for sure. And especially even each other as well. Like as we said, rather than just going less and less and less and less and less and now if we're trying to think if we're trying to build a story, we have to listen to each other to think. I tell half the story, and then Adam jumps in and changes the topic. It probably falls flat. So we sort of got to listen to each other as well as to what are we saying as well. So both types of episodes that we do, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's bloody hard
2: listening, <laughs> isn't it? All oh, right, it really is. Yeah, it's uh, uh, the only way I've learned a little bit how to listen. I did improv. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah I did you done imp- improv. Yeah, a little oh, bit. Yeah. Oh, it's great. I only did like three courses or something. Is it? Mean, less the than time, that. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the first time I've ever learned listening and it's it's one of the most important skills, right? And uh, we don't learn any of it at school and so forth. And there's, there's so many bloody skills out there that can help people so bloody much but we don't hear any of it. We we just hear what's the bloody capital of Rome and so forth a lot of through yeah. education. So it's all backwards.
1: <laughs> I, I was trying to listen there, but I missed the link. Yeah, Rome. you know what I'm saying. I was just gonna give Adam Murray a plug as well. I was just listening to an episode you did, Oscar Trimboli, and it was a full episode oh, yeah. about listening. Yeah. And, uh, so that was great. I really like that he said you can talk at about a hundred words a minute. You can listen at four hundred words per minute, but you think at nine hundred words per minute. So you've got to be super careful about uh, mm. to what you're thinking, what you listen to, and then obviously realize that you can only talk one ninth of that. Yeah. Uh, good episode to check out. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I was reflecting on what you were saying about well, improv,
0: but also even though, you know, both of us reflected on the start, how, you know, looking back on it now, we, we're not that impressed with how well we did listen, I suppose, mm. or how scripted we were. Mm. But it. It's just inevitable that's going to be the case in any new projects as well. And it's just about almost accepting that and saying, I'm going to do this badly, but I'm just going to Mm, do it. And doing it is the most important thing. Yeah, doing it badly is a lot better than not doing it at all, that's for sure. Yeah. Is the the war on art a little bit about that as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. I know. And uh, to bring back my, my hero, Seth Godin, again, he says that the only way to have... Good ideas is to have more bad ideas. So if everyone thinks, oh, I can't do anything, I've just got, I don't have any good ideas. He's saying the only way you're going to get good ideas is to have more bad ideas. So be willing to try something. And knowing that it's probably not going to work the first time and that every time you do it, you're going to get a little bit better and a little bit better. You can't just go from nothing to being perfect. You need to obviously go through that journey on the way of not being the best and building up as yeah. you go. We
2: yeah. recently read our uh, original about Adam Grandpa. There's a It's all about the idea of uh, becoming an original, someone who's a non-conformist and kind of like how to do it. The opposite of an original is a conformist who treads the known path and so forth and gets successful that way. But the people who are original say like you're, yeah, Einstein who came up with general relativity and so forth, one of the biggest correlations with being an original is actually volume of work. So a lot of people out there don't hear about Einstein's, I don't know, I'm going to pull this number out of my ass but it's, it's a big number, say 100 or something. His different theories, some of them were wacky and ridiculous but it was, he had to get through 100 different theories to actually find the three that mm. actually changed the whole world and this is a pattern that goes across all kinds of fields as well. I know he talked about uh, Shakespeare as well. You know, he's, He had three or four different plays that were absolute bangers but no one sees the <laughs> hundreds.
1: that were just stinkers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a lot of uh, examples in that book of just realizing that we don't judge people by their average. We only judge them by their peak. So, you got to realize that if you mm. do a hundred things, most of them are probably going to suck but the best way to get that really, really good thing is to try a lot of things. So, he says that, we often think there's a bit of a trade-off between quality and quantity. We think that in order to do something really, really good, I've got to cut out everything else and just focus on this one thing. But we don't know if that one thing is going to be any good or not. So he says that the best way to get that really good thing is to just do a hell of a lot of things and the peak will shine through eventually and everyone forgets about the crap that it <laughs> yeah. was no good.
0: <laughs> like the one hit wonder. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. The whole world's so so uncertain, right? We like to think it's predictable but by how it's... It's just not. And because it's so uncertain, it means you can capitalize on positive serendipity, right? It's like if you look back on your own life, it's these positive serendipitous moments that really change things for you, that conversation where someone spoke to someone's sister's-in-law's, brother's cousin who got you that job or something. So it's because the world's so uncertain, it's trying different things, taking small bets, and then eventually positive serendipity might enter into your life and you're much better off for it.
0: Yeah, it's a bit like the um the anti fragile Black Swan. Kind ah, of yes, right? exactly what I
2: was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Two great books. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mixed in with um steel like an artist. So I just like stole a concept from yeah. <laughs> Nassim. It's something where uh, we've been. It's hard to know when to um you know because credit someone or just claim it. It's something I'm, <laughs> I'm struggling with every day a little bit I, because basically any good idea I have comes from a book somewhere yeah. and I can't go around just crediting, 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 crediting. <laughs> just, just, just claim it,
1: mate. So <laughs> I'm starting
2: to think I'm just going to claim it. So maybe in 12 months I'll be just claiming a whole bunch of stuff.
1: We'll know. The three of us
2: will know.
0: <laughs> I had a reflection on what you were saying about you know the two books that really had a positive impact on you, Stopping Smoking and Stopping Drinking Alcohol you were talking about how almost it wasn't a focus on this is how you make a good habit. It was like painting the picture of what it mm. could be and using that as a, a drawing force in a way. Now, I was reflecting on, I guess, some of the changes I've made over the past three or four years around... I'll go back a little bit further. I used to be really into sport and... um I guess most of my fitness goals were about looking good mm-hmm. and probably living for a long time as long as I could as well. They were like what I was heading for and they were relatively relatively successful or relatively useful ways of doing that. But in the past three or four years, that really switched from a few people, a few podcasts that I listened to and the books that I read about, I guess, changing that approach to me saying, I want to show up in as many moments as I can as well as I can for as long as I can. So it became more about how well I show up. And I noticed in the small changes that I made that I did show up better. So for example, the big one was just sleeping better, like going to sleep at a regular time and sleeping for how long my body needed to sleep for. Mm. And the impact that that had, I think my point that I'm trying to make is that it didn't feel like a habit. It didn't feel like something that I'm doing this and it's outside of me. It felt like much more embodied and that this is just my lifestyle now because Mm. I know of the benefit that it's giving me. Mm. And I think that's how I relate to a little bit what you were talking about there with smoking and alcohol. Yeah, Yeah. there's
2: there's something that draws you to it. I feel like um, if I think if we both went to like a Tony Robbins event, everyone knows who Tony Robbins is, but the way he makes people change is like he gets you to delve really deep into what your bad habit is and then multiply that by a million, 30 years in the future and feel that pain but at the same time paint the picture of what it could be like and that's the thing that you know just creates such a drive in you. Someone else who does that very similarly is like Jordan Peterson when he does the future authoring program which I've done recently as well and again, you just write about what's bad about now in the present and then at the same time, you write what's coming in the future and like really paint the picture of where you want to be as much as you can as well. So yeah, I feel like that's one of the big creators of drive of... Of like a sustainable kind of change and big changes in your life is is that similar to you?
0: Yeah, I've actually done the future offering program as well. Yeah, I've got mixed feelings about Jordan Peterson, <laughs> <laughs> but I did get a lot of value out of um, the future authoring. And yeah, I think it was it was it was partly yeah imagining and and feeling that and uh, an ideal future and a dystopian future mm-hmm. as well. And then it was. Something about small gains and noticing the big impact that those small gains were having. So, you know, you talked about how maybe you went a little bit overboard and changed everything at once when Mm -hmm. you did change things. And I think for me that's been a bit of a problem in the past where I've tried to change too much Mm -hmm. at once and it's just crashed down. So making these small changes, because changing the way I eat meant that changed the way I socialized, changed the way I shopped. It's like it was a a far-reaching decision and so I couldn't do it all at once. I just needed to make those small changes and that gave me the confidence that I could make more changes but it also showed me that those small changes were having a big impact. If I just keep doing this, it's going to multiply in its impact. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Cool, well... I've only got a few more questions for you as we start to wrap up. There's one that's probably a little bit obvious, but I want to ask it anyway. Well, actually, first, do you think Jordan Peterson would ever, you'd ever get him on the podcast? Is that a. So
1: we, we were sort of early on the Jordan Peterson train and we knew his book was coming out. We knew he was coming to Melbourne and we got in touch with his publisher and his PR team and stuff. And they were like, yeah, cool. Let's, uh, We'll organize a time. Let's get back in touch in a couple of weeks. And within that couple of weeks, he pretty much blew up. And they were right. sort of like, yeah, no, we're going to, we'll put him on the mainstream TV shows instead. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> so yeah, maybe one day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That'd be interesting. He's, uh, I mean, he has blown up, as
0: you say, mm. and he does have some really interesting things to say. And he's quite controversial at the same Most time. So. I think yeah.
2: uh, I maybe share some of your ideas. I think he gets a bit of expert creep where he's a real expert in the area of psychology and so forth. Where I don't relate with him, I love ninety percent of the things he says. But recently, I've listened to him, and he's creeps into the field of like climate change and sustainability and stuff. And, and it's like, mate, it's not your area. That's it's your opinion. You've got a lot of fallacies in that area. It's like just just stay ahead of that. And you know, maybe that's just me just being uh, you know repulsed by anyone who's against uh, climate change and so forth. But yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's something where I don't really like about pedo. Yeah. Can I call him that? JP? JP.
0: Yeah, so you've talked a little bit about the books that have been really profound for you, and you've got a top ten list. But I'm interested to hear, like, what was number one for 2018, and on the other side,
1: what are you looking forward to being released in 2019? Mm. I guess to answer the second question first, we don't really plan that far ahead. We sort of, as we said, we've got a big shelf of books, and we get more and more each week. So there's sort of, we don't like have a list of 50 that we're going to read, and we're really looking forward to. But to answer your first question now. Number one from 2018 for me was uh, something we've already talked about, The Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene. I loved his first book, The 48 Laws of Power, and he's got some other awesome books as well. But this book really tied together. It was 18 chapters, 18 different aspects of human nature, of human behavior. And I read it that you can first and foremost sort of understand yourself and realize what are you doing and why you're doing it. And then the second level of that is to perhaps change that about yourself as well. So to firstly realize what's happening and then secondly, here's some ways that you can change that to make it a little bit more positive if you want and then the third way is also to recognize what other people are doing and why they're doing it as well. So yeah, I really love that book. Well, that was mm-hmm. and it's amazing. Yeah. It goes very dark
2: and extremely dark. I talked about the dark side earlier, that was from the book. But another one he talks about is the uh, beware the fragile ego, the law of envy and I've never really delved into the idea of envy uh, much ever but he says it's like one of the most painful emotions, right? Because subconsciously we always go around and we compare ourselves to everyone else out there and when someone else is doing that a little bit better than us, then we have to admit to that. When you're envious, you have to admit to yourself that someone is more superior to mm. you in some kind of way and that's like painful, right? So what we do when we have envy, we quickly swap that to hostility and this is a lot of time is the seed of gossip and uh, bitch talking and people, mm. if you notice people have been envious of you previously, they can get extremely hostile and do things completely out of character. And around this time reading the book, I saw it in my friendship group, people were gossiping about another mate who was doing well and normally I don't think I'd ever jump on the bandwagon but I was able to stop that bandwagon about everyone talking shit about him for no reason because so I would just see the envy a mile away for being so conscious of it. And everyone listening, right? Everyone's got envy. You're not above it, but there is a good way you can get over it. You can move closer to what you envy. And from there you'll see that the people you envy, just like you every day, they're doing an extremely mundane, bullshit kind of tasks, right? Their life's not extremely special, full of roses. Hmm. But at the same time, if you move closer to them, you can actually start emulating the things about them where they're genuinely superior than you. So being around People who're better than you. It does take a lot of guts to be able to do that, but that's the way to to emulate them. Mm, great. Yeah, it slaps you up, man. It's a good book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to read it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> is that your number one book as well, James? Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
2: number one. It's uh, yeah, like similar to that you'll be reading it, be like, oh, that person's stuffed up. That person, like, it'll go through like, eight different characters, and then it'll get to you, and be like, oh shit, <laughs> I learn a lot of uh. Bad things about, well, not necessarily bad <laughs> things that about myself that I had no idea I did. Yeah. And, and then it, unfortunately, it would go, You're this person because when you were a young person, you're something fucked up, blah, blah, blah. You're <laughs> oh, like, Shit. I don't remember <laughs> that happening, but <laughs>
1: yeah, I think that was uh, for both of us. Number one. I think I can speak for, for you as well. Number one for the year, number one of all time. Yeah. And uh, I think it would probably stay number one for a, for a fair while as well. I can't see anything knocking that off for a fair while. Oh, amazing. Yeah. yeah. Last question.
0: Each of you, it's a personal reflective question as well and it's reflecting back on the topic of this podcast, which is around subtle disruption. And it's something small that you've done in your own life that's had a disproportionately big impact or an important impact, maybe a sustaining impact, maybe it's ongoing or maybe it was just um, something at a particular point in time.
2: The biggest one for me was recently out of uni, I went straight to a big corporate as a big structural engineering firm doing concrete engineering and so forth which as a headliner sounds really good but there's no scarcity in that industry at all. There's there's no shortage of structural engineers who can design with that product. So it doesn't matter how how hard it is to learn the skills and get there, there's no scarcity. So the biggest disruption, a subtle disruption I made in my life recently was making the move in direction of sustainability and went into timber where there is no one really there and people would see it as a weird career move but there was complete scarcity there and and I'm definitely reaping the rewards of of scarcity in terms of opportunities surrounding that. Yeah, great.
1: I didn't listen to that one, sorry mate. I hope it was a good answer because that was a deep question so I thought I had to (laughs) ponder by myself for a little bit so I look forward to listening back to that one after. But uh, I guess the obvious one, not to flog a dead horse is obviously reading a lot has been massive uh, in so many ways that we've obviously covered a lot but the... uh, other thing that I think was super important was was just trying things, like being open to constantly learning, constantly growing, and constantly trying things that might or might not work. Because I think if you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got. You know, there is like a, a somewhat clear path ahead of us if we want to go down the conformity route of, as I said at the start, you know, go to school, go to uni, get a good job, work hard, get promoted, work even harder, and then eventually retire. That's sort of the the obvious path. But the other path is to try a few different things and be exposed to positive serendipity and, you know, maybe something might take off, maybe nothing will, but building those skills along the way, building that confidence along the way, building that courage along the way and just being open to trying different things. Yeah. Two great answers and it's great to be chatting with
0: you. Like it's it's such a great story and I'm encouraged by what you've actually had a go at doing and the way you've gone about it and... Yeah, I just hope that it keeps getting more and more successful for you and uh, you keep um, yeah, bringing knowledge in, a, in an accessible way to people. So, mm. yeah. Appreciate Thank it, you. man. Thanks so much. Thanks, yeah. man. Yeah. No worries. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with me, the best way to do that is through email to adam at subtle Thank you so much to the people that do send me emails. I really appreciate the encouragement. I really appreciate the guests that you suggest as well. Many of them have turned into actual guests in this show. So if you do have any suggestions, please send them through. Something else you could do if you can find the time is to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or through other platforms that you might use. It's pretty easy to do through the app on your phone or on your laptop or computer. I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected, and resolute in your own quest to subtle disruption. And one day, I hope to hear about your subtle disruption as well. Bye for now.